to my little friend. So soon, you might be thinking, episode 7 already. Why are these episodes coming so thick and fast? Well, I want to get this series on hell out of the way, quite frankly. Plus, it's a new podcast, so I want to have a lot of episodes available for people who just begin to subscribe in the near future, so there's plenty of of stuff for them to listen to. So, here we are again. And today, I'm finishing off the, the series on hell... Uh, by finishing a couple of arguments that still remain for the traditional doctrine of eternal torment and against the idea of annihilationism. So I won't waste any time. I'll get straight into the final arguments now. And the next group of arguments that we were up to is categorizable under the... Is that a word? Yes, I suppose it is. Under the heading of worms and fire. A very graphic passage from... Mark 9, verses 43 to 48. I'll quote it to begin with. Jesus says, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is Mark's first reference, the Gospel of Mark's first reference to Gehenna, translated hell, but probably better left untranslated being a proper noun for a place name, as I discussed earlier in a previous episode. This is a well-known passage used to support the doctrine of eternal torment for a fairly obvious reason. I mean, the language is just so, well, hellish. Jesus warns his listeners about the possibility of going into Gehenna, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So on the basis of this saying in Mark, theologian William Crockett has claimed that, quote, There is no doubt that the New Testament writers expected extended suffering to take place in the next age. He said that commenting on this passage in Mark. Robert Yabra, I think that's right, Yabra, Yabra, goes further, saying that in Mark 9 then, I'm quoting now, Jesus teaches that hell's agonies are ongoing and never-ending. He says, rightly, that Jesus teaches about hell by quoting the view expressed in Isaiah 66. But it has to be said Given that he actually realizes that it comes from Isaiah, the fact that he still thinks that it teaches eternal torment, given what Isaiah said, suggests a certain lack of objectivity. It's the kind of partisanship that I spoke of when this podcast first began, and I'll hopefully show you that that's the case here. Before any reasonable conclusion about its meaning, that is this text in Mark 9, can be made, the background of this saying must be fully taken into account. 
That's just part of responsible interpretation of Scripture. Now, this is a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 66. So I'll quote uh, part of that chapter here, along with some context to help establish the meaning. So I'll begin with some background in verses 15 to 16, and then I'll go to the salient part in verses 23 and 24. So I'll begin. The Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to pay back his anger in fury, and his rebuke in flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord execute judgment, and by his sword on all flesh, and those slain by the Lord will be many. Now the end part. From new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. And they shall go out and look at the dead bodies of the people who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Simply in the context of Isaiah 66, eternal torment is not present at all. Instead, what is in view is a scene of God's enemies having been violently and graphically, uh, sorry, described in graphic language as having been killed off. And now all that remains is a pile of bodies being consumed by maggots and fire, a, a scene of disgust and abhorrence, as the writer calls it. Now how does this bear on Jesus' use of verse 24 in Mark's Gospel? Well, it seems to me that at the very least, it can be said that and this is being gentle, I think, it's not obvious that Jesus' saying requires us to see him teaching eternal torment. Commenting on Mark 9.48, New Testament commentator R. Allen Cole notes that, and I quote, The Old Testament context, Isaiah 66.24, helps to explain this solemn imagery. It has reference in Isaiah to the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. Gehenna, the eternally smoldering rubbish dump outside Jerusalem, is the symbol of the final state of those who have rebelled against God, amongst whom Jesus warns us that we may find ourselves unless we enter God's kingdom, verse 47, equated with life, verse 45. So the contrast there, from Isaiah anyway, is uh, combined with the words of Jesus that you can enter God's kingdom and have life, or you can end up like these slain enemies of God from Isaiah. Reflecting on the way that this passage is frequently used in traditional evangelical theology, Douglas Hare advises us that, and I quote, It is clear in the Isaiah passage that the apostates whose worm and fire are unending are, quoting from Isaiah, dead bodies, end quote. There is no suggestion, he says, that these evil persons will suffer eternally. Their carcasses will remain indefinitely as a reminder of their rebellion against God. Generally, I think he's right, but I, I even think he concedes too much to the traditionalists here. Isaiah doesn't even say that their carcasses will remain indefinitely. In fact, just think about that. How could carcasses remain indefinitely if they are being consumed by maggots and fire, or even just one or the other? In Isaiah, it would be a reasonable inference that we are being shown how such language can be used to stress permanence and irreversibility. The traditional use of this passage in response has been less than satisfying. Often in traditional defenses of eternal torment, the verse is quoted without comment, as though its meaning does not even need explaining. It's just obvious. 
It's generally treated in isolation from the text that Jesus is quoting from in Isaiah. When Edward Fudge, the annihilationist, for example, makes the observation that the worm in this picture is a devouring worm, and what it eats in Isaiah's picture here, quoted without amendment, is already dead, Robert Peterson's retort comes as an unpleasant surprise. Here's what Robert Peterson said in, in response to this obvious observation. He says, quote, Once more Fudge imposes his annihilationist reading of the Old Testament upon the New Testament texts. Does this sufficiently explain Jesus' words about the worms not dying? My comment, yes. He goes on, Would the worm not die when it had consumed its host? Should not a conditionalist theologian address the traditionalist arguments arising out of the text? End quote. Well, what argument? Apart from just quoting the text, what argument are you using? So what he's saying here is, to use an understanding of the meaning of Isaiah to interpret these words of Jesus is an imposition which does not allow one to understand the New Testament passage properly. The apparent assumption that he makes here is that we must, must, treat these words of Jesus as though they do not mean or could not mean what Isaiah meant. Why would we assume that? Now to be sure, uh, taking Isaiah into account, as Jesus clearly did by quoting him, does make it more difficult to find eternal torment in these words of Jesus, but that hardly makes it inappropriate to take Isaiah into account. Unless, of course, our aim all along was just to find eternal torment here, and it very often is for evangelicals defending doctrine. When contemporary preachers quote the New Testament to teach on a particular doctrine, we don't reject what they say on the grounds that they are imposing a New Testament understanding upon an issue. On the contrary, we say that their view is being bolstered by the authority of the New Testament, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing with the Old Testament. He is a preacher drawing on the Old Testament as an authority for the message that he is delivering. We shouldn't assume that he, he was, was attributing a new meaning here. But what of the reference, some might ask, and fairly so, to the unquenchable fire here in Mark 9? Thus far I've only spoken about the quote from Isaiah, but Jesus also refers to the unquenchable fire. So firstly, I want to sort of issue a bit of a warning when you encounter this argument from traditionalists. Keep a close watch on what traditionalists say when they quote this verse. Now, since they have a developed theology of what they think this phrase refers to, you might notice that from time to time they misquote it. Unintentionally, I'm sure. I'm not accusing them of being dishonest. Unintentionally substituting their own interpretation for the words of Scripture. Uh, I mentioned theologian Robert Yarborough uh, earlier. He quotes this verse as referring to, and these are his words now, the fire that never goes out. Subtle difference. Be on guard for that kind of thing, because it, all it takes is a subtle change like that, a change of wording, to give a rather different impression. The reference in Mark 9 is to an unquenchable fire. Uh, theologian Larry Dixon, who wrote a book in defense of eternal torment called The Other Side of the Good News, uh, in response to the suggestion that the fire of Mark 9 might be a consuming rather than a tormenting one, quotes Alan Gomes and leaves it there as an adequate rebuttal. So I'll have to quote Alan Gomes to show you what Larry Dixon said. Gomes, sorry, Gomes' response is a good example of the way traditionalists read this text. He says, Worms are able to live as long as there is food for them to consume. 
Once their food supply has been consumed, the worms eventually die. But the torments of hell are likened to undying, not dying worms. This is because their supply of food, the wicked, never ceases. As an aside, I would add, and that's not the only reason a worm would die. I mean, they do get old. But anyway. So he actually slightly dodges the question of fire uh, as as an agent of of consumption and destruction and goes back to the worms. But you can see the general nature of his argument. Uh, lest it be thought that this is only one, pecu one peculiar version of the traditional argument, this identical argument is marshalled in the semi-official statement of the Master's Seminary, uh, where Richard Mayhew reasons as follows. He says, The unquenchable fire of chapter 9, verse 43, that's in Mark, must have an endless supply of fuel, otherwise it would be quenchable which would be impossible if one took the annihilation view. Since the worm does not die, it implies an endless supply of food, which could not be with the annihilation view. So I think this is his argument. Worms and fire require food or they will die. This text in Mark says that the worms in hell will not die. Therefore, this shows that the lost people in hell will never be consumed or destroyed. But... This argument impugns the way that Scripture itself uses such language. It basically says the Bible is wrong to use this kind of language in Isaiah. Now, it's not their position to say that. Um, it also entails a kind of absurdity. One might ask, what, what are these worms eating? Well, Gomes calls the wicked food for the worms, so it seems that he thinks that the worms are eating the wicked. But... If they are actually eating, as Gomes says, then the food source will never be dissipated. What we need to further claim is that either the unsaved are eternally growing new flesh in hell, so that the worms can eternally eat, as these guys are, are saying, or that when people go to hell they acquire infinite body mass, so that regardless of how much is eaten, more food for the worms will always remain. Likewise with the comment that Mayhew makes about the fire. If the unsaved really are literally fuel that sustains the fire, then in order for them to provide a perpetually undepleted source of fuel, they would quite simply have to keep producing more material to be burned. Or they would need to have infinite mass. Now they, you know, Gomes and Mayhew and other traditionalists might react to this and say, come on, that's, that's ridiculous, you're being so absurdly literal. But they started it! <laughs> The absurdities do not arise if we allow the scriptural use of terminology, like in Isaiah, to guide our interpretation of it. It's only when we you know, come up with new and novel approaches to this language that require a bizarre literalism that we have to justify it with such strange uh, exercises and exegesis. It appears that the mere appearance of reference to fire that is not quenched calls to mind, for some people, a familiar view of hell that they are familiar with anyway, that involves fire, and in turn that view is then found in the biblical statement itself. It's a kind of circular reasoning. Robert L. Thomas demonstrates this, for example, when he says, while defending eternal torment, that, quote, the picture of being victimized by worms whose appetites will never be satisfied, and of a fire that will never run out of fuel, is repulsive beyond imagination but he believes it anyway. Um, it may be repulsive. I don't particularly care at this point if it is or not. But the truth is, 
This passage doesn't refer to a fire that will never run out of fuel. That's just what he thinks it refers to, and so he reads those words back into the text. This is another one of those traditionalist slips, the subtle misquotes of Scripture slipping their theology into incorrect quotes from Scripture. Mark 9 refers to a fire that will never be quenched, not a fire that will never run out of fuel. Now Thomas might think that this entails a fire that will never run out of fuel, but no such meaning is intrinsically present in the words, especially when their usage elsewhere in Scripture is considered, as I'll show you in just a moment. A fire that is not quenched, that is, I mean quenched, by the way, means put out, like when you point a hose at a fire, you quench it. A fire that is not quenched is one that is allowed to burn unrestrained, that is, unquenched, until it has done whatever it is going to do, or keeps burning. Either way is fine. That is exactly how such language is used, for example, in Ezekiel 20, verses 47 to 48, which I'll quote now. It's a prophecy where God says, Say to the forest of the Negeb, Hear the word of the Lord, thus says the Lord God, I will kindle a fire in you, and it shall devour every green tree in you, and every dry tree. The blazing flame shall not be quenched, and all faces from the south to the north shall be scorched by it, and all flesh shall see that I am the Lord that sorry that I the Lord have kindled it. It shall not be quenched. Okay, so it won't be quenched, but what will it do? It will devour the forest. No one's going to put it out. That's what it's saying. It says that it's a blazing fire that will destroy the forest, and no one's going to save the forest because the fire will not be quenched by anyone. It's going to do its job. No one's going to stop it. An unquenched fire is simply one that is not prematurely snuffed out. This has no implications for whether or not the fire will last forever. So apart from just good common sense in interpreting language, we also have a good scriptural precedent in Isaiah 66 and Ezekiel 20 for understanding it this way. If this is the case, then Mourner Hooker is surely right when he says of Mark 9, and I quote, It should be noted that nothing is said here about eternal punishment, by which he means eternal torment. I object to conflating those two descriptions, but that's what he does. On the contrary, who goes on, the image seems to be one of annihilation in contrast to life. It is the fire and not the torment which is unquenchable. Now let me add something at this point. It is true that the New Testament writers, or Jesus whom the New Testament writers are quoting, are quite entitled and able to take Old Testament passages and give them new meaning. That is done with a number of Old Testament texts that are said to be fulfilled in the life of Jesus, for example. Uh, prophecies like, I have called my son out of Egypt. That's an obvious one. But in the cases under consideration, notice two things. Firstly, the New Testament writers and Jesus do not give any indication that we are supposed to attribute new meaning to the Old Testament material that they are drawing on. It's capable of carrying the same meaning and making perfectly good sense. And secondly, Traditionalists aren't even making the claim that this is what Jesus is doing. Their claim, or at least the claim of many of them that I've seen, is just the mistaken claim that the Old Testament text of Isaiah itself teaches eternal torment. And you know Jesus is quoting this teaching about eternal torment. But as we've seen by looking at the context of Isaiah 66, 
This is simply not the case. In no sensible interpretation of Isaiah 66 will yield the understanding that he's talking about eternal torment. Okay, time for a quick break. I'll be back in just a minute. Hey there. Oh, hey. I was just at Theology Web. What have you been up to? I have been going to another theology forum. You are such a noob. What do you mean? Theology Web is Teroxor. Oh. Theology Web, you say? OMG. Do you mean you have never heard of it? Well, I didn't know. I mean, um, what I'm saying <laughs> is, <laughs> hey, stop that. It's somehow not my fault. R-O-F-L, this is too much. Hey. Hey, what's happening? This Mac Tart has never heard of Theology Web. What the? Yeah. OMG. Hee 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 hee. Oh man. Oh crap. Now I feel like such a loser. Fellow robots. This is not a laughing matter. Don't let this happen to you. Join Theology Web. Today. 101. Back again. Time for the last group of arguments. Now I've chosen to call this arguments arguments based on apocalyptic literature, uh, just because that's what they are. I've saved this category of argument until the end because I think these arguments count as the most powerful argument for traditionalism. Now I didn't say that they are a strong argument or arguments. I said that they constitute the most powerful group of arguments. In spite of that, I still think the arguments are on balance fairly weak. I personally find it telling that uh, the strongest arguments for the doctrine of eternal torment is drawn from this kind of writing, and really only from one book in particular, the book of Revelation right at the end of the Bible, a book notoriously replete with symbolism and imagery. I think the situation is analogous, very similar in fact, given that they're both kind of eschatological issues. Uh, I think it's quite similar to the situation in eschatology where futurists, I won't bother for now explaining what that means, gain a doctrine of the millennium almost exclusively from Revelation 20. Now I don't think they interpret it carefully or get it right, but that's another story. This method alone should send off alarm bells, if for no other reason than the fairly common sense judgment that clear scripture should be used to interpret less clear scripture and not the other way around. Do you remember how in episode 5 we saw that traditionalists have a habit of deflecting what looked like clear biblical arguments against their position, like the argument from immortality or the biblical vision of eternity and so forth, by um, appealing to the book of Revelation? Uh, they appeal to Revelation 20. Uh, this, this was the case, for example, with Chris Morgan and Robert Peterson, and using their interpretation of that uh, uh, piece of scripture to fend off arguments drawn from many diverse types of text. That said, I'll, I'll get into it without uh, offering too many more summary critiques. Here is the basic traditionalist argument from the book of Revelation, two passages in particular in that book. Uh, the first one is in Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through 11. So I'll, I'll read that for you now. Then another angel, a third, followed them, crying with a loud voice, Those who worship the beast and its image and receive a mark on their foreheads or on their hands, they will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured unmixed into the cup of his anger. And they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. 
and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image, and for anyone who receives the mark of its name. Now, according to Robert Peterson again, this text is one of the three, quote, most revealing biblical passages on hell, end quote. So it's right up there with the most important ones. Like many, his conclusion is that, quote, Revelation 14, 9 through 11, teach that hell entails eternal conscious torment for the lost, end quote. Popular evangelical theologian Millard Erickson, author of what is actually quite a helpful overview of evangelical theology called Christian theology, uh, he reflects on this vision and says, uh, quote, what would produce smoke unless something was burning, end quote, as though, well, duh, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? It would surely follow that if the smoke goes up forever, then the unsaved must burn forever. The exegete who does not believe in eternal torment then, like me, is in a position where he or she needs to show why this passage should not be interpreted to refer to the traditional teaching. So I will do that. The book of Revelation is, as both sides of this debate are well aware, replete, full of scriptural imagery and language, and this passage is no exception. It is, uh, quote, rooted in the Old Testament. This is where we find the clues to the meaning of the various symbols, comparing scripture with scripture. That's what uh, David and Pat Alexander have to say in the Lion Handbook to the Bible. And they're right. In fact, while unlike most New Testament books, this one never actually quotes uh, the Old Testament, it remains true that, and this is another quote, no book of the New Testament is more thoroughly saturated with the thought and language of ancient scripture than the book of Revelation. That comes from J.R. Michaels in the entry of Old Testament and Revelation in the fantastic work, the Dictionary of the Later New Testament and its developments. And he's right. The book of Revelation draws on the Old Testament even more than Hebrews does, even though Hebrews quotes, quotes it far more often. It, the book of Revelation is just packed with pictures and imagery that come from the Old Testament, almost from start to finish. This fact should alert us to be extra sensitive to the scriptural background of the imagery that we find in this book. The language used here of the followers of the beast is almost exactly like that used in the prophecy in the Old Testament against Edom. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 34 verses 9 and 10. Here's what it says. And listen carefully for the similarities. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched, its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie, no, lie waste, no one shall pass through it forever and ever. No exegete has ever suggested that this passage in Isaiah 34 refers to the eternal torment of Edom or its inhabitants. In spite of this language, uh, on the contrary, commentator John Watts makes the observation the effects of the ban bring an end to Edom's existence as a country, its existence, and as a people. The resulting desolation is pictured in three ways which may, may remind a modern reader of the anticipated results of a nuclear bombing. The countryside will smell of burning pitch and sulfur. Pitch occurs only in the Old Testament Oh, sorry, it occurs in the Old Testament only on one other time, but sulfur was rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah, he cites Genesis 19 there, in a place very near to Edom, 
In Ezekiel 38.22, God allows sulfur and fire to fall on Gog and Magog. And in Isaiah 30, verse 33, the breath of Yahweh is pictured as a stream of sulfur. The desolation is pictured as lasting forever, burning day and night. And that's from John Watts' commentary on Isaiah 34 to 36, uh, the word biblical commentary. Otto Kaiser, another well-known Old Testament commentator, uh, concludes that, quote, It is clear enough that he, that is the poet here, thought of the end of Edom in a similar way to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, end quote. So it seems self-evident that the language of endlessness here, that it, it references like fire never being quenched, smoke never ceasing, always rising forever, is not intended to portray eternal misery, but rather the perpetuity, perpetuity of the destruction. It pays to read these things before I say them. The image of smoke used here in Isaiah is taken directly from the account of Sodom's destruction. In Genesis 19.28, Abraham looks upon the remains of Sodom the following day and sees, quote, dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. There is, therefore, a, an obvious biblical precedent in prophetic literature for the intended meaning of the images of subjection to fire and sulfur, along with the accompanying picture of never-ending ascending smoke. Although a strictly literalistic interpretation might imply burning that lasts forever and smoke that continues to rise literally forever, the point being made via such imagery, both in the Old Testament and the New, is that the destruction is total and irreversible. If you complain that that's just a wrong meaning to convey with this language, then you have to say that the Old Testament got it wrong. But evangelicals don't want to do that, and rightly so. We see the same kind of imagery appearing in the book of Revelation elsewhere. For example, we are told that the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. So this is the end of an evil empire. In chapter 18, verse 21, yet when this overthrow is depicted, we see a reappearance of the language from Isaiah. Uh, in verse 21, it says, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. What is in mind here? is the overthrow of a godless kingdom, just like with Sodom and Edom. The smoke rising forever and ever emphasizes the totality and irreversibility of the judgment. That's what this language has a biblical precedent of meaning, both in the Old Testament, here in the case of Babylon, and therefore it makes sense to read the, the reference in, in chapter 14 in the same way. It is these observations that lead Edward Fudge to say that eternal torment, quote, is a possible interpretation, that's a fair thing to say, is a possible interpretation if we ignore how the Bible itself uses the same language elsewhere, end quote. A commentator, G.K. Beale, whose commentary unfortunately tends to read a bit more like theological polemic than exegetical commentary, uh, he also wrote, incidentally, for Robert Peterson and, and Christopher Morgan in the book Hell Under Fire, to defend eternal torment. G.K. Beale is aware of this connection between Isaiah 34 and Revelation 14 and 19. He, he gets the fact that this language comes from the Old Testament and reappears in reference to the followers of the beast. He notes that the reference to Babylon's smoke ascending forever as well, quote, comes from Isaiah 34, 9 and 10, 
where the portrayal of smoke continually ascending serves as a permanent memorial to God's punishment of Edom for its sin. End quote. So when it comes to Babylon, he's happy to admit that. However, when he sees the same language applied to the beast, because he already knows what eternal torment, sorry, he already knows that eternal torment is true, so he expects to find it here, he finds what appears to be a difficulty. Because this language of destruction shouldn't be applied in cases where he knows eternal torment is really the truth. He says here, Revelation 14.11 also, that is, in addition to 19.3, alludes to Isaiah 34.9 and 10 to describe the never-ending effect of God's judgment on the beast's followers. Here, Edom's fall is taken as an anticipatory typological pattern for the fall of the world system, which will never rise again after God's judgment. Why does John reapply the Isaiah allusion from 14.11, which there referred to the eternal punishment of unbelievers and here to Babylon's judgment? What is the link between the two similar descriptions? It is perfectly natural that ungodly individuals whose lives were inseparably linked to the great city should also suffer the same fate as that city, a linkage borne out in 18.4. So, Gregory Beale sees the connection between the destruction of Edom and the destruction of the city of Babylon and notes the obvious, that the latter is using the language of the former to make the same point, that it will be annihilated, it will be done away with. However, when he sees that same imagery being applied to the fate of those who follow the beast in Revelation, he thinks there's a problem. But the only real problem is that Beale, like other traditionalists, doesn't believe that the ungodly people will suffer the same fate suggested by this imagery, permanent destruction. How, asks Beale, can the imagery on the one hand mean eternal punishment, by which he just means eternal torment, and yet only a few chapters later mean everlasting destruction? Well, good question. How can it? The answer is that it doesn't. It's only because he thinks that it does that he has a problem. I guess it keeps him employed and gives him things to write about, but don't create problems where there aren't any. This problem will only arise if we approach the book of Revelation believing in eternal torment to begin with. Otherwise, no conflict would arise when we see the destructive imagery of Isaiah being applied to the followers of the beast. We might also note that Beale's solution does not really achieve the end he wants. When he acknowledges that these texts show that the ungodly individuals suffer the same fate as that city, it is apparent that he has not taken eternal torment off the proverbial hook at all, as much as he might like to think he has. He actually undermines it because the fate of that city was annihilation, permanent destruction. Don Carson, uh, kind of regarded as an evangelical heavyweight when it comes to exegesis, he rejects uh, my view of Revelation 14, but on grounds that are almost staggering. He says, If there is an allusion to the sufferings of Edom in Isaiah 34, that's here in Revelation 14, I suspect that Edom has the same typological reference to hell that Sodom and Gomorrah have. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In other words, don't use Isaiah to interpret the book of Revelation. Just see them both as a reference to hell. And we all know what hell involves, don't we? Eternal torment in eternal fire. But if Edom like Sodom and Gomorrah, really do serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire, and they do, 
then the result is an acceptance of annihilationism and not a rejection of it. It appears, however, that this is not what Carson wants his readers to think, to put it mildly. The context of his words show us that he is defending eternal torment as a definition of hell. His argument, broken down, goes like this. 1. Hell is eternal torment. We'll start with that, shall we? How convenient. 2. The imagery of Sodom and Edom foreshadow hell, which is what is presented here in Revelation 14, using the imagery of Edom and Sodom. Therefore, Edom and Sodom foreshadow eternal torment. It hardly needs pointing out that this is a circular argument. Unless the first premise is granted at the beginning, the argument doesn't even get off the ground. We could just switch uh, premises like this. Insert premise 1a. Hell is annihilation. The imagery of Sodom and Edom foreshadow hell. Therefore, Edom and Sodom foreshadow annihilation. That just shows he would accuse me of begging the question for doing that, and rightly so. I'm just saying the same for him. A more persuasive argument is this. Number one. Revelation 14, in order to convey a certain meaning, uses the imagery and language of Edom and Sodom. 2. The imagery and language of Edom and Sodom has a biblical precedent for conveying the idea of annihilation. 3. Therefore, the punishment alluded to using, using imagery in Revelation 14 is annihilation. Uh, Robert Peterson uh, I'll look look around to see what other traditionalists have done. And when I come to Robert Peterson, I see that he's done nothing to rebut this interpretation of Revelation 14. But he does appeal to this text as though it clearly excludes the annihilationist view. He doesn't quite say why, or at least he doesn't defend the view that it does. It's noteworthy, actually, that when he was interacting with Edward Fudge in the book that they co-authored, Fudge pointed out that, that the scriptural imagery is being drawn from Isaiah, but Peterson made no reference to Isaiah's words in an attempt to account for their reappearance here. In other words, what we're seeing is a pretty widespread failure on the part of traditionalists. Other defenders of eternal torment have offered similar approaches, i.e. non-approaches, to this connection. Buis, I think that's how you say his name, uh, Harry Buis, for example, in his famous book on hell, quotes it. He quotes Revelation 14 without any comment at all, along with Revelation 20, verses 12 to 15, also without any comment, and just assumes that this will silence those who do not believe in eternal torment. Just quoting the verses alone will do it. I'm afraid not. Exegesis is what we need here. And a vital part of exegesis is using scripture to interpret scripture, especially where one passage of scripture is clearly drawing on another. His, that is Harry Buis's latest later comments on the verses that he has cited focus on providing evidence that the Greek term for forever really means forever, but that's not in dispute. That's kind of a distraction. What's being pointed out is that the vision itself is drawing on imagery that refers to complete destruction. What this means, I mean, we accept this, uh, evangelicals accept this already, but what this means is that the visions in the book of Revelation are not intended to be taken absolutely literally any more than the Old Testament prophets are. Rather than trying to impose what we think would be a natural reading of the text, that is, reading it as literally as we possibly can, we must allow the scripture to spell out its own 
picturesque vocabulary for us. This is especially true in light of the very nature of apocalyptic literature, as Sam Hamstra uh, explains in, in, in the book Four Views on the Book of Revelation. He says, Scholars describe this pictorial representation of truth as apocalyptic, a style of communication and writing characterized by bold colors, vivid images, unique symbols, a simple storyline, a hero, and a happy ending. Thus, in Revelation, you meet angels, animals, and numbers. You see lightning and hear thunder. You witness earthquakes and battles. You see the sparkle of jewels and a woman clothed with the sun facing a terrifying dragon. You see a rider on a white horse and you hear the lyrics of the Hallelujah Chorus. When we forget the genre, that is the general type of literature that we are dealing with, and begin to treat the book of Revelation like a simple historical narrative or a didactic piece of writing about the nature of the world to come, we are misusing it and we cannot hope for any reliable results. And and as I've said before, this is not just a comment on the way we use it when it comes to final punishment. This is how we use the book of Revelation in general. When we do take the genre seriously into account and allow scripture to interpret its own symbols, I think we are on much safer ground. One final observation on this passage that is made by Ralph Bowles, I think that's how you say it, Bowles or Bowles, regarding the immediate context of Revelation 14, a fact that seems to have eluded most traditionalist theologians commenting on this verse is that it doesn't actually depict any kind of punishment at all. Rather, it depicts an angel announcing a punishment on the followers of the beast. These are the words of the angel. They're not a description of the punishment that John then later sees. What he sees is an announcement here, and then he sees those words come to pass later. The punishment does not occur until verses 14 to 20. The Son of Man and his angels harvest the earth with sharp sickles, and the grapes are thrown into the winepress of God's wrath. Verse 20 tells us, And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for a distance of about 200 miles. Now, incidentally, this is more imagery drawn from the scriptures in Isaiah 63, further confirming the annihilationist view. Rather than endless conscious suffering, the picture of being crushed until the blood gushes out for many miles is a ghastly picture of a gruesome death. But, admittedly, simply to see the image and to conclude that this is exactly what final punishment would be like is just to make the same mistake that traditionalists make with the earliest ver early verses, you know, verses 9 to 11, about fire and sulfur. The point, however, is that using the same kind of hermeneutic that traditionalism uses for verses 9 to 11 to find eternal torment, we could interpret these later verses the same way and just end up with a contradiction. So Ralph Bulls concludes, The conditionalist interpretation of, of Revelation 14.11 fits the immediate context much better than the eternal torment reading. There's no tension between the terms of, of a proclamation of final judgment in Revelation 14, 9-11 and the description of final judgment in Revelation 14, 14-20. The traditionalist reading has a tension between the eternal torment supposedly predicted by, by Revelation 14, 11 and the picture of final annihilating destruction that follows in Revelation 14, verses 14-20. It's not clear how the traditionalists might justify taking one image so literally and yet not taking the second one literally at all. But I think that such a decision 
any kind of mechanism that could justify doing that would be purely arbitrary. So that's what I make of the traditionalist use of Revelation 14. We're back, and let's waste no time getting into the final argument, uh, namely the argument from Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. The most powerful argument in the whole Bible, if I do say so myself, for the doctrine of eternal torment. So I'll begin by quoting it. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You can see why it's the most useful verse for the doctrine of eternal torment. When I first encountered the doctrine of annihilationism, I didn't want to believe it. I thought it was false. I expected to be able to look through the Bible and find text upon text upon text that combined the idea of eternity with the idea of torment. I was able to find only one, this one right here. That's why this verse is perhaps more important than any other. It hardly needs explaining why those who believe in eternal torment would use it this way. We have all the necessary elements of the traditional doctrine here. We've got the lake of fire. We've got conscious suffering and an eternal duration. All right. So the devil is thrown in to suffer along with the beast and the false prophet. And just a few verses later in verse 15, we see that whoever's name was not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Right, so let's get going into this one. Jürgen Roloff, a commentator, holds back from offering any explicit comment as to the nature of the lake of fire in verse 10, saying that, like the beast and the false prophet, the devil is thrown into the lake of fire, considered to be an, an inaccessible place beyond the world. The power of the evil one is thereby ultimately eliminated. End quote. So he doesn't say anything about what the lake of fire is there. He does, however, use verse 14 to give meaning to the image, namely the lake of fire. He says... Death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. The powers of death themselves are ultimately killed. God deals with them as Satan and his other associates. At issue here is not punishment, but as John observes in a clarifying postscript, eternal destruction. The lake of fire is the second, i.e. eternal and final, death. Now eternal destruction, that phrase isn't here, but the rest of it seems fairly straightforward. So this is the first way of responding to the traditionalist argument. When death is thrown into the lake of fire, it is killed. This raises questions over the meaning of the lake of fire. If an entity like death can be thrown into it, then does this not make it difficult to conceive of it as a place or state of conscious suffering? It seems clear, as Roloff notes, that the point of depicting death being cast into the lake of fire is to show that death itself will one day be done away with altogether. Death will be no more. This in itself seems to suggest that the lake of fire itself signifies an end, a death. The eminent uh, New Testament commentator Mounts affirms this understanding, connecting death's fate in the lake of fire with Isaiah 25.8, which declares that our God will swallow up death forever. Mounts then notes the final annihilation of death, followed by the explanation of death being the lake of fire. He says, It is the second death, that is, the destiny of those 
whose temporary resurrection only results in a return to death and its punishment. It's obviously important to do this kind of analysis, comparing one part of a vision with another, trying to ensure that we don't interpret one part in a way that is inconsistent with how we interpret another. All the same, however, we need to remember where this imagery came from in the first place. It is not original with the book of Revelation, but it is taken directly from the earlier books of Scripture, in this case largely from the book of Daniel. Chapter 7 in particular. Here Daniel has a vision of four beasts, the same beast of Revelation. And then unlike the vision in the book of Revelation, which just presents the vision and leaves it at that, Daniel's vision is explicitly interpreted for us in chapter 7 verses 15 through 28. Even a cursory reading of Daniel 7 and the book of Revelation reveals that the beasts are supposed to be representative of the same entities. We cannot hope to do justice to a study of the uh, book of Revelation and, and, and Daniel and the beasts in, in the time that I'm going to use here. But I can make some general observations. The beasts, we are told, are kingdoms that exist on the earth with one kingdom being distinguished as more terrible than all the others preceding it. This is the fourth beast in Daniel, or the second beast in Revelation. This interpretation is not expressly given in John's Revelation, but it is made clear in Daniel 7, verses 17 and 23, where it says, The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on the earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it and crushing it down. It's this fourth beast that is given the infamous number 666 in Revelation chapter 13, verse 18. Now, interpreters right across the theological and eschatological spectrum, while they don't agree on much about eschatology, they do agree that the beast of Revelation does not represent an individual person, but a kingdom, a kind of system. Reformed preterist Kenneth Gentry sees the image representing Rome, with Nero Caesar as its representative. A dispensationalist futurist, John Walvoord, sees it as the revived Roman Empire in the last days. Uh, Sam Hamstra, who's what's known as an idealist, sees the beast representing the spirit and empires of the world. Now, all these views of the beasts, beasts differ from one another, they demonstrate the consensus that the beast here is not a personal entity, but rather a symbol for an abstract or corporate entity of some sort. This much at least seems unavoidable given the divine interpretation of Daniel's vision. But this does throw a spanner in the works for the traditional interpretation of Revelation 20.10 as referring to eternal torment. The difficulty is spelt out briefly by Edward Fudge, who notes that, quote, according to many Bible scholars, these i.e. the beast and the false prophet, are not actual people, but they represent governments which persecute believers and false religions which support those governments. Neither institution will be perpetuated forever, nor could they suffer conscious, sensible pain. Robert Peterson has come back to this, however. He says, however, Fudge fails to mention the devil, who, along with the beast and the false prophet, is cast into the lake of fire. I understand the beast and the false prophet to be individuals capable of suffering pain. <clears throat> He's wrong, but I'll ignore that for now. He says, but I'll put that to, to side for a moment. What about Satan? Fudge, as an evangelical Christian, refuses to depersonalize the devil. So here is one personal being who will suffer an everlasting torment. 
Revelation 20.10 tells us that the devil will be thrown into the lake of fire. Five verses later we read that human beings will be cast into the same lake of fire. Wouldn't normal hermeneutics dictate that the, under, the understanding that human beings will be headed for eternal torment too? He's actually missed the point of, of uh, Edward Fudge's argument. Fudge made the observation. He didn't deny that some humans will share the fate of the devil and the beast. That wasn't the point. His comments are said in the context of his discussion of what the lake of fire must refer to. If it depicts a fate that will be suffered by an impersonal or corporate entity like the beast, then whatever it is, it is not conscious suffering, because this is a fate that cannot be applied to such an entity. In other words, whatever this symbol, the lake of fire, signifies, it must represent a fate that can be applied to both personal entities, like the devil or lost human beings, as well as impersonal or corporate or abstract entities like the beast. Destruction would certainly be a possible interpretation, because you can destroy corporate entities, but eternal torment wouldn't work. You know, a, a corporate entity can't suffer eternal pain. That that just breaks down language. It makes no sense. Presumably, Peterson's reply would be that, well, the beast is a person, and it will be consciously tormented. This is why it makes no sense that this is the very aspect of the argument that he chose to put to one side for a moment. He put to one side the very point of the argument, which, you know, is an indication of why he ended up not responding to it. So this fact that the beast represents a corporate entity demands an annihilationist interpretation of the lake of fire and not a traditionalist one. The scriptural background to this passage creates problems for the traditional view in at least one other way as well. Like the book of Revelation, Daniel 7 actually records the fate of the beast. So you've got two prophetic books talking about the same beasts and they both depict the fate of those beasts. You'd think they'd do it in exactly the same way, right? Wrong. I'll read from Daniel's vision. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. Now, when this part of the dream is interpreted, because that was part of his dream, we learn that in historical terms it refers to a godless kingdom that will oppose the saints of God, but a time will come when the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. In Revelation 20, the fate of the beast is described as being tormented day and night forever and ever in a lake of fire. Now, if I put the traditionalist on the spot and commit them to the same what I perhaps a little harshly call the same fundamentalist method of biblical interpretation in both cases... Say, so look, they're both prophetic books. I demand that you interpret them with exactly the same method. What happens? You get a contradiction. Because if one is slain, one cannot also be kept alive and tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, this is quite apart from the fact that the beast is not even a someone in the first place. If, however, we accept that the same point has been made in both apocalyptic passages using a variation in similar but not quite identical imagery, then the point in each case is that the kingdoms that oppose the kingdom of God will be overthrown forever. They will come to an end. A question may then be asked, well then, why even refer to 
tormented day and night forever and ever? And that's a reasonable question. Um, what I would say to that is, why refer to a beast being slain and thrown into the fire? I mean, why refer to anything in particular? Uh, we can first note that whatever the answer to this question is, it won't be a threat to the position that I'm advancing. Because as we saw in Daniel, whatever happens to the beast is merely symbolic of what happens to the kingdom in real history. Uh, I would also note that nowhere else in Scripture is a picture of the eternal torment of anyone pictured, including the devil, the man of lawlessness, Second Thessalonians 2.3, or the coming Antichrist in, in 1 John 2.18, and certainly not an earthly kingdom. The only suggestions I would make are somewhat speculative as to you know, why this language and why not other language, but my suggestion would involve the desire to paint a truly frightening and spectacular, picturesque picture of the end of this persecutor of the saints, the saints, incidentally, who were to read this letter, one that portrays a lasting tribute to the punishment of those who so cruelly treated the people of God on earth. The same must also then apply to the devil and those who follow him, since those too, those too uh, suffer the fate of the beast in Revelation 20, namely the fate of the lake of fire. If the beasts represent kingdoms or systems, then the message of Revelation is the same as that of Daniel 7, which is essentially a recurrence of the message of Daniel 2 in Nebuchadnezzar's dream about the statue which Daniel interprets. The parts of the statue represent various kingdoms, which are obliterated by a rock representing God's kingdom that grows to fill the earth. The interpretation is given in verses 44 through 45. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, and the silver, and the gold to pieces. If traditionalists are not prepared to seriously tackle this point, then F.F. F. Bruce's claim can be regarded as unchallenged. He says, quote, Since the beast and the false prophet are figures for systems rather than individual persons, the permanent destruction of evil is evidently meant. I agree, and so does Clark Pinnock, whose observation rings true when he says, I take John's primary point to be that everything that is rebelled against God will be overcome and come to an end. And that's the end of my treatment of the last of the major arguments against annihilationism in favor of the doctrine of eternal torment. As always, I welcome your comments on this episode of the podcast and previous ones. If you have anything to say, any questions about the arguments that I've been dealing with, send them to me at podcast at beretta-online.com. You can either send them as text or even send an audio clip and I'll put you on the show. And you know what? Last time I lied when I said that this one would be shorter, but we got there in the end. Uh, maybe it's a relief to be done with this subject. I will be back with the next normal episode, normal length, normal structure. And so for now, it's so long from... Say hello to my little friend!